One of the most unique and special interactions that you can have in human life is when, when you have a final conversation with somebody. And some of you have probably experienced that before. It, it might be in a hospital room, in a deathbed, where there's a loved one, a grandmother, a grandfather is sharing with you their final words. Uh, one of the things we do at West Georgia with the football team is when guys are about to graduate for the last home game, the seniors get to stand up and they get to pass on words of wisdom to the freshmen and the sophomores and the juniors. In a sense, they give final words to their teammates. Maybe you've witnessed a, a politician or a CEO or an employee give their final words, their farewell address before they retire or transition to another company. But it's a very special moment. It's an intimate conversation. And what, what, what happens nearly every time, what would be totally, is these people share, they pass on things and topics that are near and dear to their heart, right? It would be totally inappropriate for somebody who is giving their final speech, their final words to talk about the weather or to talk about their favorite restaurant in town or even to talk about the Georgia Bulldogs because when you give a final testimony, a final speech, a final word, it forces you to talk about what is most important, the topic, the theme, the value that means most to you on a heart level. So it makes sense that if we were to examine the final words, the farewell address, the parting shot that Jesus gives before he ascends into heaven, it would be something that is deeply significant to him. Luckily enough, we actually have Jesus' final words recorded, and they're recorded in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's something that we call the Great Commission. It's probably very familiar to most of you who have attended church. And Jesus simply says this, go and make, what is it? Disciples. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded to you. And he gives one final amazing promise. He says, I will be with you always until the end of the age. Now, there's something pretty interesting about Jesus' final address, his final words. He commands us to go and make disciples, and he's addressing his 12 disciples, but he's also addressing you and me if we're followers of Jesus. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, go and make Christians, does he? He doesn't say, go and make converts. He doesn't say, go and make people who walk an aisle or make a one-time momentary decision for Jesus Christ. He doesn't even say, go and make church attenders of King's Chapel Presbyterian. He calls us to make disciples. And there's a reason for that. Because the identity of the early church was not that of Christians, but of disciples. You ever thought about that? Very often in our day and age, we refer to ourselves as fine, upstanding, moral citizens, as Christians. But did you know this? If you read the New Testament, you will only find the word Christian three separate times. And by and large, when the word Christian is used, it's actually a, ter- it's a mocking term. It's a term of derision or accusation. It's when the culture is jonesing and laughing at the early church. And what the culture, the world was saying is, you people, you early church, all y'all do is you talk about Jesus. You try to live like Jesus. You guys are worshiping and praying to Jesus. You guys are like little Christ. 
And so they made fun of them by calling them Christians. By and large, when, when believers referred to themselves in the early church, they called themselves disciples. The word disciple appears 269 times in the New Testament. And a disciple was someone who is both a learner and a follower. Both a learner and a follower. And this is what Jesus decides to focus his final words on. The task, the commission to make more disciples, more learners, and more followers. And the Apostle Paul picks up the same theme. In a sense, Paul's final words are the book of 2 Timothy. Most scholars agree that that Paul's final letter or epistle was the book of 2 Timothy. And Paul is writing this while he's in jail, locked up in Rome. And the book is called 2 Timothy because it's the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And Timothy was a beloved disciple of Paul. Timothy lived in a town called Ephesus. And he had just been thrust into leadership in a church that Paul had started. So while Paul is writing this sermon, he's locked up. He's in chains. He's bound. And he's stuck in a little prison cell. It's an underground dungeon. He's staring out at just a little hole for light. And he pins this letter. And he writes it to a man named Timothy. By all accounts, Timothy must have been timid. He must have been shy. He must have been introverted. And on top of that, Timothy's going through a leadership crisis because his mentor, his spiritual father, Paul, has been locked up, is on the verge of death, and now Timothy has big shoes to fill. He's got to step in and take over leadership of this church. And so in this context, against this backdrop, Paul writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, if you could read with me. He says to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So there's three things we learn from this passage. There's three things we learn about making disciples. First, we learn the method. Second, we learn the mindset. And finally, we'll talk about the motivation. So if like Timothy, like these students, you want to commit your life to the Great Commission, you want to live in light of Jesus' final words, you're going to need these three things. First, the method. Paul gives us a blueprint. He gives us a strategy. And here it is. He says, Timothy, what you've heard me say, entrust it to faithful men who will teach others also. We call this the process of spiritual multiplication. This is the task of disciple making. And very often when we talk about discipleship, we call it life-on-life discipleship. Because discipleship is not curriculum on life. It's not book on life. It's not program on life. It is life-on-life. Discipleship is when I use my life to bring somebody who is younger in the faith to a point of spiritual maturity. And this is what Paul was all about. You can look at another passage in Colossians 1, 
verse 28, Paul says this. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that I may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul says, If you come to my church, if you're a part of my body, I want to bring you to a point of spiritual maturity. Now, did you pick up on this? Notice the relationship that Paul has with Timothy. What does he call Timothy? He calls him his what? Y'all help me out. His child, his son. In other words, when Paul views his relationship with Timothy, it's not of a boss to an employee. It's not a coach to an athlete. It's not a teacher to a student. It's what? It's a father. It's a mother to a child. In a sense, discipleship is like spiritual parenting. Therefore, discipleship is not a list of steps. It is not just sharing or imparting information. It's imparting my life into another. And here's the reality, and I think we know this as we examine our own lives, is that people don't naturally follow sermons, do they? But they follow men and women, individuals, who embody those sermons. We, we don't naturally follow and obey abstract principles or truths. But we do follow people, mature believers who embody those principles and truths. So think about it this way. I have the great privilege of discipling young men at West Georgia. And a lot of these young men are in dating relationships. And so I can sit them down in my discipleship group. And we can study Ephesians 5. And I can say, men, love your girlfriends just like Jesus loved the church. Or... As well, I can bring them into my home, and we can eat dinner together, and they can watch me and observe me and witness me as I wash the dishes, as I engage my wife, as I serve my daughter, as I change dirty diapers. That's real discipleship. It's life on life. It's one thing for me to say, man, we got to pray and not give up and study the parable of the persistent widow. It's another thing for me to meet weekly, wake up early in the morning, Sit together day in, day out with these young men and pray earnestly for our teammates and our fraternity brothers and our family members who don't know Jesus. This is what we mean when we say that discipleship is life on life. But here's the thing. Paul makes it really practical because you don't disciple anyone. Just because someone claims to be a Christian, just because somebody shows up to church does not mean that you should select them for the process of discipleship. Paul says right here that selection is critical. And he says if you want to be a disciple maker, you've got to look for a particular type of man or woman. And he gives us two attributes and two characteristics. The first is this, disciple those who are faithful and able. Do you see this? He says look for men, look for women who are both faithful and able. Well, what does it mean to be faithful? It means you need to be reliable. And trustworthy. you got to show up. So I've got to look for somebody who is not only faithful to walk with Jesus, they're faithful to fight sin and pursue holiness, but they're also faithful to meet with me. And they show up, and they're dependable and reliable. But I also want somebody who's able. Because the whole purpose and bottom line of disciple-making is what? It's multiplication. It's that we would reproduce. We would make more disciples. And therefore, I want to select men who have a willingness, an ability to share the gospel with others. 
And so able to teach does not mean sign me up to preach at King's Chapel next week. Able to teach simply means this. I have a willingness. I have a desire. It might be raw. It might be untrained. It might be growing and budding. But I want to impact my neighbors. I want to share the gospel. I want to reach the lost. That's what it means to be able to teach. And Paul says, these are the men. These are the, the individuals I entrust the message of the gospel too. Now think about that word entrust just for a moment. Entrust, it means to deposit. And when you entrust something to someone, that means it's valuable, it's priceless, it's worthy. Now, now I'm one of those guys, like, I, I, I'll give you just about everything I own because I don't really own anything that, that's, that is very valuable or priceless to me. I mean, if you came to me today and said, Ben, can I borrow your truck? I'll throw you my keys immediately. I'll give you food, I'll give you my clothes, but if you say, can I watch your daughter, that's a little bit bit of a different story. I might entrust Ellie to you because she's priceless, she's valuable to me. So I'm sure there are certain items and pieces of property that you have that are extremely valuable. And with those things, you probably don't want to entrust them to other people. And if you, if you do have something, maybe like family jewels or a will, something that is extremely priceless, what do you typically do with that thing? You lock it up. You hide it in the back of your closet. You put it in a shoebox under your bed. With things that have value, we guard it. You put it in a safety deposit box. But what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, first and foremost, the gospel is priceless. The gospel is worthy. But unlike the other priceless items that we may own, we don't keep the gospel to ourselves, do we? We don't lock it up. We don't stick it in the back of our closet. We don't store it in the bank. We give it away. We give it away. We pass it on. And this, brothers and sisters, is the power of multiplication. If we could go to the next slide, what Paul is describing right here is three generations of spiritual multiplication. Paul says, I'm investing my life into Timothy. Timothy, you invest your life into faithful men, and these faithful men invest their life into others. We see three generations of spiritual multiplication. And here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Have you thought about this? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, guess what? You're a link in that chain. You you are a direct result of verse number two because the chain, the multiplication of the gospel has continued from Jesus and Paul to Carrollton, Georgia, today. So have you ever thought about this? God did not intend to reach the whole world through spiritually elite people, right? God does not desire to reach the world through the ordained or the seminary trained or the pastors or the campus outreach staff. You know what God wants to do? He wants to reach the world the exact same way he populated the world, And that was through what? Through multiplication. Am I right? And so look, just in the same way, when you got married, you didn't say, well, you need a college degree or a seminary degree or four years of of training before we have a kid. You just said, let's do it. Right? (laughs) Let's do it. Let's make a baby. Right? Because we want image bearers. And we know this is going to be difficult. We know this is going to be hard. But there's so much joy and satisfaction about multiplying my life. 
and bringing life into this world that will inevitably lead to multiple generations, the same principle applies to spiritual multiplication. It doesn't happen through the spiritual elite. It happens through everyone. And so very often in our day and age, churches tend to focus more on addition rather than multiplication. So we're called to focus on multiplication. Let me show you the difference right here. Let's flip over to the next slide. So when we talk about addition, we talk about those amazing, dynamic evangelists. You ever know somebody like that? It's like they're constantly leading people to Christ. They, they sit down on the bus, the cafeteria. They're always sharing the gospel. It's like they sneeze and somebody comes to Christ. That's what I mean when we talk about amazing evangelists. Let's think just for a moment that there was somebody in this church was such, that was such an effective evangelist, they could lead 1,000 people to Christ each and every day. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Okay? Now, kids, all right, you guys are still doing your math. If, if somebody led 1,000 people to faith each and every day after one year, how many Christians would there be? Okay, just add three zeros, right? 365,000 new converts. Let's compare them to a multiplier, a disciple maker. And this is simply someone who says, I want to impact one person. I'm going to share the gospel with one person, one convert. But this disciple says, I'm going to do something a little different because I'm not going to stop on conversion. I'm going to disciple this person. So I'm going to pray with them. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to help them learn how to study the word. I'm going to involve them in the local church. I'm going to teach them how to share the gospel so that at the end of the first year, the disciple maker has how many believers? They have two believers. You guys can see the numbers above. But at the end of the first year, okay, excuse me, at the start of the second year, the evangelist would have what? 730,000 new converts. The disciple maker would have four. But here's what's really interesting. Okay, go down to year 24. At year 24, the disciple maker would overtake the evangelist. The evangelist would have reached over 8 million people. The disciple maker would reach 16 million and by year 33, the evangelist have, would have reached $12 million. That, that, that's a good day's work. But the disciple maker would reach 8 billion people. That's greater than the population of the earth. And that is the power of one person faithfully multiplying his life through the process of disciple making. You with me? So is everybody fired up? Is everybody jacked up? Now we know in 33 years, right, we can reach the whole world. But this begs the question, and here's what you got to ask yourself. Who is my man? Who is my woman? Who, who is the one person, the two men that God has placed in my life that I'm going to invest what I've learned, what I've heard, what I've been trained in? See, I think very often our prayer is this. Hey, God, if you open a door, I'll share the gospel. If you have a man, I'll invest in them. But I would encourage you to change your prayer because God's already called you to make disciples. God, God has already called you to share the gospel. Change your prayer to this. God, who is my man? Who is my woman? Is it an employee? Is it somebody sitting next to me? Is it a child? Is it a cousin? Just find one person and invest in them. But here's the thing. All right, if it was that easy, we'd have already reached the whole world. I just gave you the blueprint, the game plan. In 33 years, we can impact 8 billion people. And yet, 
We haven't, have we? And there's a reason for that. And you might be jacked up and excited about impacting the world, but when reality presses in, we realize this is pretty difficult, isn't it? It's challenging. It's stretching. And so Paul brings it down to reality and says this, look, if you're going to be an effective disciple maker, you got to have three mindsets. you got to think like three types of people. you got to be like a soldier, you got to be like an athlete, and you got to be like a farmer. So here's what I was thinking. I thought this would be a great opportunity as pastors. You want to give examples from your own life? Unfortunately, I'm not much of an athlete, soldier, or farmer. All right, My peak athletically was like JV basketball. Okay, Never enlisted in the Marines. I was like a Cub Scout for a little bit. Did the Pinewood Derby. That's as far as I made it. And I'm definitely not a farmer. I was born and raised in this city. But then I thought to myself, Did you know in this very church, we have soldiers, athletes, and farmers? So I figured, what if we involve them in this sermon and see what can we learn from the soldiers, athletes, and farmers when it comes to discipleship in our midst? So a lot of soldiers to choose from, but I went with Mike Mason. Okay, so Mike, will you stand up? Okay, Mike, former Marine. Okay, now we got a time limit. So, Mike, you got two minutes. It's going to be hard for Mike, but he can do it. Mike, what can we learn from, from, from if we're going to be disciple makers, what can we learn from the soldier's responsibility to endure suffering? Yeah, real quick, the uh, three th- cliches come to mind. First off, a few good men. All right, you've probably heard that term before for the Marine Corps, but you know, we're not one of the larger branches, but it's a few good men that the Marine Corps are after. All right, then the next thing is extreme pain is extremely good. And so that's the going through the suffering. You go through boot camp, it's three months, and they try to put as much extreme pain on you as possible. All right, then the third thing is once a Marine, always Marine. Because the thing about it is you've gone through that suffering together. Because, you know, really, they're training you for combat. Every Marine is a basic rifleman. Whatever your job's going to be, we all have to be trained to be a basic rifleman to defend the country, to help somebody else die for their cause or for their country for, so we can stay alive. But that's why once a Marine, always Marine is so important. So when we f- see a fellow Marine, uh, be it a female or a male, that we know we have gone through the same suffering together. And so there's a, another great uh, phrase that we use, Fi, always faithful. And we're always faithful to one another because we have gone through that suffering together. We know what it takes uh, to be the Marine that we're expected to be and to be able to support and care for one another. So That's great. That's great. And let's actually flip over to the next slide. You'll see right here. All right, there's Mike Mason. There we go. How much did you weigh in that picture? There you go, lean, mean, fighting machine. That's it. And so here's what Paul tells us to do. He says, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding. So as you hear these individuals share about their experience, just think about it. What would it look like for me to have the same mentality as a soldier as I approach disciple making? Well, the first thing Paul tells us is we gotta be ready to endure suffering, right? I mean, just here's the mindset. If you're going to enlist in boot camp, and your expectation is, I'm going for a nice getaway, amazing accommodations, all right, a five-star resort, great dining, a king-size bed, you're going to be severely disappointed. 
See, if Marine is mobilized to the front lines, he expects what? He's going to suffer. He doesn't expect it to be a walk in the park, a trip to his favorite restaurant, or a time at a relaxing resort. He is expecting difficulty, challenges, perhaps even casualties, and absolutely sleepless nights. But here's the second thing we can learn from a soldier, is that a soldier does not get entangled in civilian affairs. And what Paul's talking about right here is the mentality or the focus of a soldier. We tend to call this a wartime mentality. It means you have to stay alert. And let's just think about it this way. I don't have my phone on me. But there, there are very few social settings that we won't pull out our phone, okay, check a text, social media, Instagram, and Twitter, especially for the young people. Am I right? It could be in church. Okay, I'm looking right now. I don't see anybody. It could be in the classroom. All right, one place especially people are pulling out the iPhone, even in the toilet stall. Am I right? We, 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 we call it a squat and surf for the college students. Okay, don't, don't think too hard about that. But here's the thing. There is one location, there is one setting I absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt, even the most social media addicted college student will never break out their iPhone. You want to guess where that is? It's in war. It's in battle. It's on the front lines. Because when you're on the front lines and the bullets are flying, you have to remove every distraction. And so here's what Paul is calling us to do. He's saying don't allow your life to be consumed by things that don't really matter. You need to be focused. You need to align your life, your time, your resources, your purpose with what matters most. So think about these things. Do I have the mentality of a soldier? Am I prepared to suffer? Am I focused or am I distracted? Am I fighting the good fight? Okay, now we're going to move on to the athlete. Now, before, before we move on to the next picture, just so you know, Mike actually requested to be the example for all three, the soldier, <laughs> athlete, and farmer. I, I don't know about farming, but I hate to break it to you. Mike's athletic claim to fame is this. Let's show the next picture. Okay. Okay, you guys can have a debate over lunch. All right, is, being, is cheerleading a real sport? Specifically, male cheerleaders. But a lot of athletes to choose from, all right? We got a lot of great intramural athletes, a lot of high school has-beens. I decided to go with the current athlete. We got John Hurst, okay? John, stand up. John plays wide receiver he right here at West Georgia. Okay? Go West. John had a big, big catch in the fourth quarter to get the win for the 4-0 West Georgia Wolves, undefeated right now. So, John, if we want to be a disciple maker, we've got to be like an athlete, and we've got to compete according to the rules. What can we learn about athletics when it comes to making disciples? Yeah, um, I can definitely relate with the comparison um, that Paul makes between disciple making and being an athlete. Um, I think the biggest one is in each of them there's a similarity between um, having an end goal, having an end result that you're working for, that you're striving for, whether it be a finish line, um, or just a mission and a purpose that you're really working for. Um, and so in ath athletics, you know, you're, you're working and you're striving, you're training, you're doing all this to, to win a game or, um, you know, to, to win a race or to win a medal or a trophy or win a championship. And uh, I think discipleship is no different. I, th I think the common goal is to, to win souls. Um, and it's, you're trying to be faithful to the end. 
Um, you're trying to present people mature in Christ all the way to the end. Um, and you're trying to fulfill the great commission of making disciples of all nations. And then I think another um, similarity between the two is in each of them, you need extreme perseverance. Um, it's going to be hard day in and day out. Um, you're going to want to quit. You're going to want to cut corners, but you really got to play by the rules. You got to do the little things right. Um, and so in athletics, that means waking up early to train. That means staying late to perfect your craft, dieting, nutrition, um, being in treatment, watching film, doing the little things right. And then in discipleship making, it's the same thing. Um, you got to pray earnestly for others. You got to plan and prepare for others. You got to teach others, be an example to others, encourage to others, um, and just train them and equip them so they can multiply their lives as well. That's great. That's great. I think we had a good picture of John in action right here. There we go. Okay. So Paul tells, think about these things. Think about an athlete. Athletes have to compete according to the rules. So discipleship is not a technique. It's not just a strategy because our lifestyle matters. So obedience, personal holiness is not optional. One great pastor used to say this is that your people or your disciples' greatest need is your own personal holiness. Athletes embrace self-discipline and sacrifice. I was trying to think of a modern example of this. The first one that came to mind is Michael Phelps. We all know the famous American swimmer. All right, he, he, he's on the big stage every four years in the Summer Olympics. You know, when, when Michael Phelps is going through his peak training, he swims almost six hours a day. Each week, he swims 50 miles. And his diet is almost legendary. Every day, he consumes 12,000 calories. Let me give you an example of what this looks like just for breakfast. This is just breakfast. Three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, lettuce, tomato, fried onions, and mayo. Doesn't stop there. Two cups of coffee, a five-egg omelet, one bowl of grits, three French toasts with powdered sugar, and three chocolate chip pancakes to finish it off. So Michael Phelps, you guys are clapping for everything this morning. But Michael Phelps embraces this rigorous lifestyle of diet, of rest, of routine, of training, and perseverance. And he does it for what? A chance, just an opportunity to stand on the podium and receive what? A gold medal. And it's the exact same thing in Paul's day and age. In Paul's day, athletes also competed in, in a similar competition to the Olympic Games. And Paul made this observation in 1 Corinthians 9. He said this, that athletes exercise self-control in all things, but they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, the church, disciple makers for an imperishable the point Paul's making is this, is that athletes in his day didn't even get a gold medal. They just got a wreath that's just twigs with leaves to hang on top of their ears. And yet they were extremely self-controlled, extremely dis disciplined. Michael Phelps demonstrates extreme discipline for a gold medal. Did you know a gold medal is only 1% gold? They're 99% silver. Their market actual street value is $500. So if Michael Phelps is that disciplined with his eating and his exercise, how much more should we? If Olympic athletes are this rigorous for something perishable, how much more should we for something imperishable? So think about these things. Are you competing? Are you living according to the rules? Have you embraced self-discipline? Okay, 
Our final identity, final metaphor is that of a farmer. A lot of options here once again. We're not going to go with a farmer. We're going with a teacher of farmers. So we've got Ryan Ayers to tell us about the hardworking farmer. So go ahead, Ryan. What can we learn about discipleship? Uh, yeah, when I, when I thought about this, I worked with a lot of guys and a lot of beginning guys. And a guy comes to mind that was, you know, very dependable, um, very eager to, to care for his particular guy's a honey beekeeper. And uh, very faithful, um, very engaged, uh, willing to ask for help. Um, and I, when we farm, we have to have hope. You know, if you're keeping honeybees, you're hoping for what? Honey. <laughs> <laughs> when you plant green beans, you're hoping for green beans. <laughs> and we know, though, there's going to be trials, whether it's honeybees or green beans or cattle or my daughters, they raise sheep and goats. There are just tons of trials. And we, as farmers, we have to be persistent and, and constant. And the good farmers, the best farmers, are, are always there. They're always there. They're always consistent, and they're always dependable. And, but we also have hope, and we, we rejoice in the fruit of our efforts. We, re, we rejoice when we have a baby calf born or when we get that first red tomato or when we taste that honey, that spring honey in the season. So I guess the, the, what I took from it was uh, the consistency, the dependability, but also that hope. There you go. That's right. Thank you, Ryan. So we can go to the picture. There's Ryan. Ryan is an ag teacher, so he is developing the next generation of farmers. But guys, think about these things. You see, these are simple observations, simple identities, but they're so profound. If you think about it, all three men mentioned faithfulness and persistence. Paul says right here, this is a hardworking farmer. Farmers depend on their sweat. They depend on their skill. But have you thought about this? Does anybody know any famous farmers other than Old McDonald's? <laughs> Does anybody know any, of any famous disciple, disciple makers, celebrity disciplers? Here's the route. If you want spiritual fame, go start a blog, be a speaker, or write a book. There's little glamour, little applause in being a spiritual multiplier. But guess what? There's a lot of life change, and there's a lot of transformation. And you might not pack out arenas. You might not appear on the best-selling list because discipleship occurs at the dinner table and in the dining room, in the bedroom. It occurs at Walmart and coffee shops. It's quiet. It's silent. It's secret. So just in the same way, the hardworking farmer, he plants. He knows the weather. He studies the soil. He waters, and then he patiently waits with hope. So does the hardworking disciple maker. And there's one reality. It doesn't matter how great and skilled and knowledgeable you are as a farmer. There's one thing you can't do. And what is that? You can't make the plant grow. You can't cause photosynthesis with your skill. It's the same thing with the hardworking disciple maker. We can't make growth. Only God can. But a harvest awaits. We'll make one final point. We'll look at verse 8 through 10 right here. Because Paul calls us to remember soldiers, to meditate on athletes, to consider the farmer. But ultimately he says what? 
just like Pastor Andrew does week in, week out. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of Christ is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So our final point is this, the motivation. The motivation. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying these three metaphors are not enough. These three mentalities are inadequate. Ultimately, the person you got to remember, meditate, and focus on, it's not a soldier, athlete, or farmer. It's Jesus Christ. And this is what he's highlighting at the beginning of the passage, too, because Paul channels his inner football coach. The first thing he tells us to do is what? Be strong. Be courageous. Be strong. But notice the source of our strength. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our strategy. It's not in our church or our denomination. It's not in the reality that we're a good soldier, athlete, or farmer. As Paul says, be strong in what? Be strong in grace. Be strong in grace, brothers and sisters. And this is the paradox, the puzzle of spiritual strength. Because, because Paul says this, when I'm weak, he is strong. That Jesus' power is made perfect in what? In weakness. So when, we're, when we rely on grace, when we're strong in grace, we're not strong in ourselves. We're strong in the power that Christ supplies. Because keep in mind, where is Paul when he's writing this letter? He's in what? He's in prison. He's in jail. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying there is no amount of suffering that can stop the multiplication of the gospel. Paul's looking at his change. He's saying this, I may be bound, but the gospel is not bound. So brothers and sisters, if you commit your life to making disciples, you may be rejected. You may be stopped. You may be laughed at, ridiculed. You may be avoided. You may even get locked up. But there is nothing that can spread, that, that can stop the spread of the good news. It's just like Stu Scott used to say on ESPN, you can't stop us, you can only hope to contain us. The gospel will not be stopped. And Jesus promises this in Matthew 24. He says the gospel of the kingdom, it will, it will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations. Nobody can stop this purpose. In other words, if you're a soldier, we will win the war. If you're an athlete, you will finish the race. If you're a farmer, you will receive a harvest. And guess what? We get to share in it. So here's what I want to leave you with. The words that Paul leaves you with. He says, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Well, what do we need to remember about Jesus? That Jesus was willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect. See, if you're going to be a disciple maker, a spiritual multiplier, you're going to have to endure something. Sleeplessness, misunderstanding. It's going to be taking an emotion, emotional, physical toll on your body. But Jesus truly endured everything because on the cross, he endured the wrath of God. And according to Paul, Jesus obtains our salvation. So why do we fight like soldiers? Why do we train like athletes? Why do we work like farmers? Not to earn or obtain our salvation. Jesus already did that for us. So here's the good news. See, very often in our church world, we're looking for better methods, better techniques, new strategies. 
It's not what God's interested in. E.M. Bounds says this, that the church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men, for disciple makers, for multipliers. Very often in our culture, we're obsessed with the new thing, the new technique, the new strategy, the new program. But do you see what Christ and Paul and this passage is reminding us to do? Forget about the new thing. Here's what Paul is saying. Just do the old thing. Do what I did. Do what Jesus did. Do the old thing with new people over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, imagine what would happen on your campus, in your city, in your workplace, if each and every man and woman in this church said, I'm going to have the mentality of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. I'm going to give my life to Christ's final words, to make disciples of all nations. Okay? Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, it's an amazing privilege to be invited into this process. You didn't have to involve us. You could have just saved us and zapped us into heaven immediately. But you keep us on this earth. There's a reason for that because you desire for us to share the gospel and to make disciples. Lord, I pray that we would follow Paul's advice and we would think about these things. Lord, that you would bring to our mind one man, one woman. And we might not have hours to give them every week. It might just be inviting someone to eat a meal with us, inviting someone to go shopping with us at the grocery store, involving one person in our life. Will we be intentional? Will we be committed to your final words, to the Great Commission? Would King's Chapel be known as a church that makes disciples? Would each and every one of us answer the call to make disciples of all nations. We pray this in your name, amen.